KCSF News, April 22nd, 2019. Hi, I'm Nicholas Harder, and you're listening to part two of College Dropout, an examination of the 47% dropout rate at city and community colleges. If you haven't listened to part one, I suggest you go do that. People that are kicking, let the person have success holding. So if they're not sure how to hold, don't just keep kicking. Let them set up and do it the right way. You have to kick it to get the sound, so, but the it's, sound. It's helpful then, you know when you kick right when the sound is like. Oh, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 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 Kick hard so we can pick that sound up. What class is this? Uh, it's beginning and intermediate Taekwondo. When I began this story, I wanted to know why one in two students are dropping out of community college. If you just look at statistics and data, it seems obvious that it all circles back to the money. And it is true that it is hard to pay your bills while going through school. But there is more to the dropout rate than numbers and dollar signs, especially for students coming to college straight out of high school. In this episode, we're going to hear from a couple such students. Their stories illustrate how the dropout rate is also connected to systemic issues with the way college classes are structured and the experience of coming of age in general. I shared these same stories with Vice Chancellor Michael Almaguer, who you heard in the last episode. With him, I focused on one student in particular, Paul Lopez, who is currently working full-time at a cosmetics retailer while pursuing a degree in broadcasting. One student in particular who I spoke with, Paul, mm-hmm. he had an experience which I think is pretty indicative. Okay. Paul's 22 now, and he has a story not dissimilar to Monica Nichols, who you heard in the last episode. Start small, don't start too big, start too big, and you're going to lose it. Like Monica, he was 18 when he first started going to community college down in SoCal, where he grew up. He described to me how, when he was 18, he watched most of his friends go away to four-year universities around the state, around the country, while he was stuck going to his local CC, with the same people he knew from high school, doing essentially the same things. I just felt like it was a continuation of high school with money handed to you, and you already don't want to go to high school. You already don't want to see these people that you see every day. So then why do you want to go? Paul said he felt, quote, left behind in his hometown. Other students I interviewed complained that the lack of social life at two-year colleges compared to four-year schools made them feel like they'd missed out on something quintessential about the college experience. People aren't as connected here as somewhere like SF State would be, or a UC. They're not the same in campus life. Living in dorms, going to rallies, frat parties, and sports games, these are social activities common at four-year universities that are often absent from community colleges. Part of the reason for this is that at most universities, a large portion of the student population lives on or near campus, while at CCs, that's typically not the case. Most folks at CC are too busy working and supporting themselves to spend time sitting in a car to go sit at a two-hour football game. It's weird because here, it's, it's definitely no one cares about you and no one cares what you're doing. You don't go up to someone, introduce yourself, or hang out with someone outside of school. 
everyone's doing their own thing. Exactly. I know that like at UCs, they always have something going on outside of class. I related Paul's story and this criticism to Mr. Almaguer. He's heard similar complaints many times from the students he works with as he's guiding them through college. It's, it's not what I envisioned. I'd hear this a lot of times. Going to community college is just a little bit like a slightly higher level than what my experience was at high school, and they want to experience something else. It's not how I envisioned college. Paul also complained that his high school teachers would bash on the academic quality of the community college in his hometown. Maybe not so much here with the San Francisco Unified School District. They're very supportive to the community college here. But, you know, at another school district that I worked at, some of the high schools were kind of noted for their high school teachers. They were criticizing it as an option for students. And so students had it in their mind that that's not a good place to go. In his hometown, Paul told me the community college had a reputation for being, quote unquote, shitty. Well, you think that's part of the reason why you didn't stay on? Yeah, definitely. I was actually going to supposed to go to Chicago for school. After high school, didn't end up doing that, went to community college, hated it, and just, you know, left. After a year and a half at school, Paul decided to drop out, move up north to the Bay with his sister, and get a full-time job. Here was Paul's response when I asked him about the 47% dropout rate at community colleges. Does that surprise you? No. You could probably find the same statistic for the college that I went to, the first one. Um, Are you feeling like a number right now? Yeah. I've, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't finish there. I took a year and a half and I, I left. Paul will not be completing his degree within six years of when he first started college back in SoCal. That means that while he actually won't be counted as a dropout according to the 47% national dropout rate, he will be counted as a dropout in the graduation rate for that Southern California college and nationally. Remember, the dropout rate counts students who never finish school, while the graduation rate counts students who don't finish within a certain time frame. It's too bad he won't be counted in the more commonly referenced graduation rate, because Paul seems much more likely to finish this time around versus when he was 18. So I'm living currently with my sister in San Leandro. Turned 18, I moved up here with her, and it took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do. Being 18, I was super F everything. In Mr. Almaguer's office, I called Paul's story indicative because it illustrates the meandering path that many students take to get their degree. It's a period of rapid and dramatic transformation, being 18. You change your mind a lot. For example, most teenagers look forward to being 18 and becoming an adult for years. But then when it finally happens, it can be terrifying. Or, as in Paul's case going to community college down in SoCal, simply disappointing. So he moves up to the Bay to live with his sister and to start his adult life, and he gets a job. He has to, to support himself. It was just like feeling as if I completely went into the adult world super quick. It kind of just made me feel very lonely or depressed, very sad. I've gone through zero dollars in my bank and like six hundred dollars in my bills and i'm just like crying i'm like How, what am i gonna do and it wasn't kind of an easing into it it was more like straight on paul's been working virtually the same position at a minimum wage job for four years now he told me he feels like he's been wasting his time in hindsight he wishes he'd stayed on at college down in socal but there was one significant advantage to dropping out of school and getting a taste of adult life. 
I feel like I, I know exactly what I want to do and what I want to achieve. This time around, I'm more prepared or more willing to actually finish. Whereas then I, I just, I didn't care. There's a reason I brought up Paul's story when I went to Mr. Almaguer's office. In the last episode, we established that students are pressured to get through college as fast as possible, partly because a college's success is based on how quickly they can get students a degree. That's that graduation rate again. Paul's story shows how there's also a lot of pressure to start college immediately after graduating high school. I remember from when I was in high school, my teachers absolutely expected us to pursue higher education. But maybe for some young people, maybe for many young people who aren't sure yet what they want to do with their lives, going straight into college isn't the best option. I put the question to Mr. Almaguer. What do you think about, for example, taking a break after high school? I'll use myself as an example. I wanted to... Um, Mr. Almaguer went to school thinking he'd major in music. And I kind of but through the process of taking different courses and talking with his professors, he ended up changing career paths. He honed in on becoming a drawing and painting teacher. I want to teach. This is really interesting. I love this subject matter. So I went through my bachelor's degree and got that completed. And then after he graduated, he had an independent study, sort of like an unpaid internship to test out. Is this really what I want to do? And what, what did that do for you? The independent study yeah. was a high level of exposure to the profession. And did it make you feel like this is really what I want to do? Oh, or? Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, everyone has a different path to discovering their own career. For young men and women who are feeling like F everything like Paul was, taking a break after high school may well be the right choice. But one thing talking to Mr. Almaguer clarified for me is this. You can't know for sure what you want to do until you've tried it. The nice thing about going to a CC is it gives students the space to try something out and to quote-unquote waste time, like Paul did, without going thousands of dollars into debt. You might be thinking, yeah, well, you get what you pay for. But in the case of CCs, that's actually not true. A lot of the faculty here are the same teachers you're going to have when you transfer to Berkeley. Half of our part-time faculty members in this department teach at Berkeley or SF State or you know, some of these other places. So tell me what the difference is from what you would get if you were at SF State or you were at UC Berkeley. Over the past 15 to 20 years, community colleges have significantly raised their standards for teaching staff. Now they require most professors to hold a master's or PhD, just like four-year universities. You're getting the same quality of instruction from the same teacher. But unlike four-year schools, they also recruit directly from the industries they're training students to enter. Plus, student-to-teacher ratios at CCs tend to be lower, especially for those entry-level classes which at a large university might be held in a lecture hall with upwards of 100 students. Here at CCSF, the student-teacher ratio is around 20 to 1, something almost every student I interviewed appreciated about attending this school. So not only do students save money by going to CC, they also get more one-on-one -on -one time with professors. And if a student does end up transferring to a four-year, as many do, they'll still get the prestige of having a degree which says they graduated from SF State or UC Berkeley or Harvard or what have you. Mr. Almaguer thinks it's this idea of prestige and the perceived advantages of going to a prestigious school which pressures many parents and kids to stay away from CCs. It's like putting the title of, oh, John Smith, you know, from such and such high school went directly into Berkeley or went directly into some other 
for your school when really they would get the same education in their first year or two at a community college. And, uh, and save a whole lot of money. And save a whole lot of money. I say all this to enunciate the point that while some two-year schools aren't great, CCs in general do not deserve the bad rap they often get. There are so many pluses to attending a community college. Take Paul, for example. While his break from school may not have taught him what he wants to do with his life, it certainly taught him what he does not want to do, work in cosmetics retail. That break got him to the point where he was at least willing to try again. And for him, the City College of San Francisco is that vital first stepping stone, a low-risk way to try something new. So to start with, I'll just take your name, your age, and your focus of study. Yes. You want my last name? I don't know. Yeah, all right. Name. Social security number? Just the last all right, two cool. digits. Just, all right. Just the last two. Uh, 69, actually. Nice. Um, so Paul Lopez. How old am I? 22. There you go. Uh, and Paul is not receiving financial support from his parents. To understand why the 25% national graduation rate is misleading, you have to know that this is what CCs are for. People come here to transform their lives on a budget. And you know what? Sometimes it doesn't work out. And that's okay. At community college, you can always go back to school. Because some 18-year-olds, they're just not ready to transform. I caught up with Paul after my interview with Mr. Almaguer at the Diego Rivera Theater on campus. Here's what he had to say about his experience going in and out of school. Everything changes and I think it's just, as you grow up, you figure out, I want this and no, I don't want that. Did you feel like that when you were 18, like everything changes? No, I thought I was dumb, I was just dumb. <laughs> you think everything's in your favor and everything's gonna stay the same and you know, everything's gonna go your way. And it didn't all go your no, way? No, nothing goes your way ever. Nothing ever goes, no. How's that for an adult lesson? F everything Paul, whether he went to college or not, still got older. His priorities changed. He transformed anyway. Perhaps it's a good thing that a student only gets counted in the graduation rate, one of the most important metrics for judging a college's success if they graduate within six years. It does push schools to provide students a clear and timely path to a degree. But it means that, at least with the graduation rate, Paul is being counted as a dropout because he left school, changed his mind, and came back. It feels like a punishment for something that's perfectly natural to do, particularly at that age. Although, it must be said that students changing their minds is not the only reason it can take so long to graduate. Many colleges are not providing students a clear path to a degree. Instead, they're following an outdated policy which pushes the finish line of graduation ever further away for the most vulnerable students among us. This policy is the overplacement of new students into remedial math and English courses. KCSF News, November 5th. In the middle of last semester, at the KCSF studios, we hosted a live conversation with a student organization called Students Making a Change. 
This is my introduction to that conversation, which we posted to the station's podcast, KCSF News. SMAC is a student-led club of community organizers advocating for the rights of marginalized groups on campus. You've probably heard the phrases unconscious bias. Students Making a Change, or SMAC for short, visited us at the City College's radio station to tell us about a new law passed January 2018 called AB705. A new state law intended to help students, especially marginalized students and students of color, transfer and graduate at higher rates. Before a student enters college, they take a placement test to decide what level of math and English course they'll start out at. These tests are crucial because they can change how long it takes for a student to transfer and graduate by a factor of years. That's what happened to Yair, a student from SMAC, who in this next clip is talking about his experience with the placement test. So when I took the placement (laughs) test, I was 20 years old. It was like eight in the morning, I was tired. No one had warned me how I was going to be affected by it, right? It was just kind of like, oh, another test, right? Like, mm-hmm. I've had plenty of these. I can knock it out. But no, hell no. <laughs> like, I was raw, bad idea, Yair. <laughs> you know, again, like, I was a young 20-year-old. I was tired. I was unprepared. And I didn't have any support, right? Like, no one took the chance to be like, hey, use multiple measures. Like When Yair says multiple measures, he means that students have the right to be placed into college-level math and English courses based on their high school grades rather than a placement test. For most students, like Yair, this would have placed them into a transfer level course, putting them on track to transfer in two years. Instead, he got stuck in the lower level remedial courses, which he said felt like a repeat of high school because, well, they are a repeat of high school. And I got stuck a year and a half, right, in remedial, more than a year and a half, actually. My whole remedial course was like four years and That sounds like a college career for the average privileged student, right? Four years. It's only this year that Yair is finally able to transfer to a university to complete his degree, more than four years after he started at the City College of San Francisco, which is nominally, meaning in name only, a two-year college. In California, 80% of students who go to CC are forced to enroll in at least one remedial class. 80%. The graduation rate for students placed in remedial classes is even lower than the abysmal national average, less than 20%. Which means students placed in these classes are taking longer to graduate, if they graduate at all, and it's not because they're dropping out or changing their minds like we've heard from the other students in this story. SMAC is focused on how overplacement into remedial courses affects minority communities because those are the communities disproportionately affected by it. Latinos are placed into remedial courses twice as often as their white counterparts, while African-Americans, five times as often. They kind of have this paternalistic attitude to where a student actually has the capability to go into this classroom and to go into this transfer level course, but someone will stop them and doubt them and make the student doubt themselves. Some other members of SMAC jump into the discussion here. Before AB705, they might have not been empowered to really continue with school because of this constant dogma of having black and brown students kind of tell themselves that, you know, y'all aren't the smartest. Y'all are not going to you like, don't belong. You don't, you're not, you're ready. not ready. You're not smart enough. <laughs> yeah. You need to be, you know, two, three levels below. Yeah. You need to relearn, you know, junior high math, high school math. It's uh, discouraging. It is discouraging. And it's a big part of what leads black and brown students to graduate at a 20% lower rate than their white and Asian counterparts. 
Some are calling this discrepancy a form of segregation, with its roots in the failings of the K-12 public school system. While this issue does affect black and brown students especially, it's important for all students. It shows how setting up an expectation for how long it will take to get through school, then pushing that finish line of graduation ever further away causes students to waste money, get frustrated, and drop out. There's a financial component to all of these placements. You know, a person who gets placed three levels below has to pay for those classes. Where does that money come out? If it comes out of their family's mouth, it comes out of their savings, it comes out of their survival, financial aid. Like, that's ridiculous. And often students don't know they have the right to skip these remedial courses. This new law in California, AB705, mandates colleges to get as many students as possible into transfer-level math and English courses, with tutor support if needed. Most of the time, it's a simple matter of basing a student's placement on their high school grades instead of a one-off, arbitrary placement test. Other states around the country have enacted similar laws. They did a lot of studies, and the students that were in remedial classes actually did a lot better when placed directly into a transfer level. So what those remedial classes were doing was actually trapping students. There is solid data from the Hetchinger Report, which shows that even students who went to low-performing high schools do better when placed straight into transfer level courses. Despite this, colleges have been slow to conform to the new law. Here at CCSF, the student activists from SMAC have been struggling with the administration, trying to get them to implement AB705 in a meaningful way. Like, if students find out about it, it is because of us. We, we go up to administration and we tell these stories and they're like, nah, <laughs> you guys need those classes. And, and that's a lot of the rhetoric that we hear. Like, those classes are meant to help you. A lot of the rhetoric that we also hear is that we as students are supposed to trust the process, but the process has been failing us for such a long time now. And this is a law now. So as students, we're supposed to be like focused on our schoolwork, not educating administrators about their jobs. It's old news now, but I still want to say congratulations to the students from SMAC for pressuring the administration to put information about AB705 on the main page of the CCSF website. Nice job, guys. So the culture here is changing, but unfortunately remedial classes are not the only systemic barrier preventing students from completing school. The number of academic counselors is another huge issue. In the state of California, the student-to-counselor ratio can range from 400 to 1 to 1,800 to 1. Think about that one counselor responsible for guiding the course-taking decisions of more than a thousand students in a given semester. In a 2015 survey, only 38% of CC students reported having received help creating academic goals and a plan to meet those goals. When more than half of CC students aren't getting guidance, they end up spending time taking courses which don't contribute to their selected degree. Like with remedial courses, it's easy to see how a student could waste money in this situation, become irritated, and maybe even drop out. Sort of spinning around in a circle for too long of a time and then feeling like, well, I just spent a year not figuring out what I want to do and I didn't really have any assistance and I didn't really have any help. I could have used some guidance here. This is an issue that a few colleges have begun to tackle, and CCSF is following their lead. Well, right now we're trying to work with something called Guided Pathways, which you may 
be aware of. Guided Pathways is a new model for selecting classes thought up by some policy wizards out of Harvard and Cambridge universities. It goes back to our first part of the conversation about helping them understand within themselves of what are my interest areas, what do I think I want to major in. Guided Pathways premise is so simple, it's a little shocking a system like this hasn't been implemented earlier. The idea is that when a student enters college without a sense of direction, you know, not knowing what they want to major in, they'll get assistance deciding upon their general academic interests. Then based on those general interests, they'll be provided a clear pathway of courses which will lead them to a specific degree. Paths that I can work toward. This pathway is supposed to be adjustable as a student's interests change. So basically, provide students with more counseling and give them a path of courses to take rather than allowing them to choose from a buffet of courses at random. Seems pretty obvious, right? And so I think this guided pathways approach is really meant to help prevent that spinning to help students figure out some directions that they want to work toward. The challenge is, and has always been, implementation. The Guided Pathways approach calls for every student to receive guidance from a counselor before even starting classes. But can community colleges even afford to hire more counselors? We've known for decades that more counseling leads to better outcomes, but where's the funding been? Right now, the student-to-counselor ratio at CCSF is 587 to 1. The suggested ratio is 370 to 1. What classes might have to be cut, personnel released, or resources shuffled to conform to the Guided Pathways standard. I'm happy to see that the administration here is aware of the systemic issues which are preventing students from graduating. But it remains to be seen if the system here or elsewhere can be changed without a serious injection of cash. In the end, it really does always come back to the money. Paul Lopez told us about some of the personal, existential reasons for why one in two students are dropping out of college. His experience is exacerbated by systemic factors like the overplacement of students into remedial courses. There are many young, angsty students like 18-year-old Paul out there. Too often, they're prevented not just by their own personal and financial difficulties, but by the system itself from acquiring a higher education. Do you think it's unreasonable to expect an 18-year-old to be figuring out their whole life path, like first, second year of college? That is extremely unreasonable. Are you kidding me? You're doing it. Next episode, we're going to take a step back and ask, why should we value public schools? What's the purpose of education? And how is becoming educated connected to success, happiness, and becoming an adult? Listen, we all have dreams. But at the end of the day, you need to find a thing that you either don't mind doing but don't love doing and then make sure that it can make you a good amount of money. Can I, can I ask you something? Yes. What did you want to be when you were little? Oh boy. I'm Nicholas Harder for KCSF News and The 38. Until next time, stay tuned. <laughs>